You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. The Gospel of the Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Everybody say, how do you read it? This is one of the most amazing virtues of the character of God we will talk about in a minute. He's interested in how you process him. And we would do well, before we critique other people, to first find out how they're processing us. We'll talk talk about that in a second. How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And every one of the disciples were like, oh, he's going to tell a story now. You had to ask him that one question. And Jesus is like, well, back in 1965, let me start there. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, and Jesus is being sarcastic, now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, He had compassion. Everybody say compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. We are still in our series, Summer Apocalypse. And when I was up in the Finger Lakes, I was sitting on the dock of the bay (laughs) with, I say, Sprite in my hand enjoying myself, feet in the water, Theodore in my arms, dipping him in the water, everything's fine, I'm off, it's Sunday, I'm not thinking about stuff, I said, Jesus, I love you, but I'm not thinking about you today, I'm off, perfectly fine, and an extended, extended, extended relative walked out onto the dock and said, hey, I watch you online, I'm like, that's cool, that's cool, she said, what do you think, are these the end times? I said, I think and hope that these are the end times for the things in me that war against Jesus. She's like, no, no, no. I mean, and I'm like, I know what you meant. And we had kind of a fun conversation. But that first thought I had made me think of today, made me think of this series that we're doing. Everybody wants to talk about the apocalypse, the end of it all. But I'm pretty sure what Jesus is interested in 
is that the parts of us, the parts of our life that constantly grind against his will, that constantly push against what it is that he's doing, uh, the, the part of us that pushes against what God wants to do through us because he's generous, he's not controlling, he's not a puppet master. He has a will that he wants to have happen, and part of that will is that that will happens through us. He doesn't just do stuff and have us be bystanders. He's joining into our bodies and executing his will through our very flesh. And there's part of us that wars against what he's doing, that pushes against the goodness and the mercy and the generosity and the compassion and the passion of Jesus. And I hope that we are in the end times of that. I want that to end in me. I don't care about end times outside of that topic because the end is the beginning. He's alpha and omega. It's a circle. You don't know where it begins or ends. He can worry about that. What I'm concerned about is that the things in me that have built up a kingdom, a siege work against his kingdom, I hope it's the end times for that stuff. I'm praying that God would use these times that we're in to reveal apocalypse, remember it means to uncover, that he would uncover in me what is warring against him so that he can recover my true self and hand it back to me. I want him to uncover my nakedness so that he can recover my true self. I've said this the last two weeks. I'll say it every time we preach this series this summer. The first apocalypse in the Bible is when Adam and Eve put fig leaves on their own bodies and God clothed them with animal skins, but in order to put the animal skins on them, he had to first take off the fig leaves, which is an apocalypse. It's an unveiling. And he unveiled them so that he could further clothe them and recover them to their true self. So many of us are living in a false self because our false self can hold all of our illusions, all of our visions of grandeur, all of our manipulative ways, and I pray it's the end times for that. I pray that everything we're struggling with as a people, individually, as a nation, as a world, I pray that all of the things we're, we're struggling with, that the Spirit would work into those things and bring the end times to the part of me that isn't considering my neighbor as myself that wants the part of me that wants the world to do for me what I wouldn't be willing to do for the world around me, in my own home. The apocalypse is not destructive, despite what we see. The apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, is that Jesus said it himself, what is spoken in the house will be shouted from the rooftops. That's an apocalypse. That's an unveiling. That what's going on in the dark will be seen in the light so that he can heal it. Whatever he uncovers, he then recovers. So my first thought for you today would be, don't hide from him. Be open. Let him see it all. Because whatever he uncovers, he recovers. And, sidebar, when you see somebody else in your life uncovered, 
when you really actually see their sin, when you're, when you're actually right about something in your house, and this time you actually are, that like one out of ten times when it actually happens, and you're like, oh my God, I think I'm actually right. I don't know how to handle this moment. It's never happened before, right? In those moments when you're actually right, we have to ask ourselves, why is God letting me see the sin of the person I'm with? Why is he entrusting me with such vulnerable and private information? Because he wants us to recover the person, not continue to point it out. If you're wrong about your accusation for, over your spouse, your children, whoever you live with, your coworkers, if you love leaving work and talking smack about your coworkers, which I know you don't because I'm a better pastor than that, but if you did, or if you know people who do, if you're wrong about what you're saying, stop. It's million-dollar advice. If you're wrong about what you're saying, stop. If you're right about what you're saying, a Christian should be the first one to say, why would God let me in on something so vulnerable in their life? Is it to talk about it over drinks, or is it to find ways to help that person recover their true self? And if you're the one who sees their sin, then you're the one that has the responsibility to work with the Holy Spirit to do that. Okay? Everybody good? It's as simple as that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who's doing well with this? No, people don't even joke about that one. I was waiting for the one person, Stuart Walker, to put his hand up or something like that. Nobody. We have to learn stillness. We talked about this the last couple of weeks. We have to learn stillness. Three kinds of stillness that we have to learn. Circumstantial stillness. Inner stillness. And to get those two, we have to practice stillness. On Tuesday... Oh, we, we went from the Finger Lakes to Ohio to meet with two of our really good friends, JP and Diana Robles. And on Tuesday, JP and I got in the car in Youngstown, Ohio, and drove four hours to Cincinnati, Ohio, to watch the Mets lose to the last place team in the entire league. Very frustrating, but we got really good seats, and we drove four hours to Cincinnati and four hours back in the same day. Seemed like a good idea at the time. The game was supposed to start at 6. There was a thunderstorm. It started at 7.30. I got home at 4.15, and Sophia woke me up at 8. I needed compassion. I couldn't find it. I must have left it in the car. On our way back, it's 2 a.m., and we're seeing unbelievable amounts of lightning in the distance. We look at the radar while we're driving, and in Columbus, Ohio, a macro burst is heading towards Columbus, Ohio. It's moving southeast. We're driving northeast. We're about to intercept this thing like a free safety in an NFL game. It's like we're heading right into it. And I say, I think we'll be okay. And JP's like, yeah, we'll be fine. All of a sudden, our phones are like, if you're in this area, leave. Don't drive. What are you doing? You guys should stop. JP and Bill, we're talking to you. Everybody stop. What are you doing? There's a tornado. This is ridiculous. Pull over. And we're like, we'll be fine. And we drive through. One of the worst storms I've ever been in in my life. So bad that it was actually safer to stay on the highway because there's no trees. 80 mile an hour wind, like lightning with sparks like all around you. And you're like, Lord Jesus, please let this lightning hit somebody else's car, not mine. <laughs> all that stuff. I tithe, just not let it hit somebody else's car. I'm sure somebody on this road does not tithe. Let it hit their car. 
Essie said I could be sarcastic. Everybody chill. So we have one of the best discussions while we're driving through this storm. And it was surreal because it was 2 a.m. We were exhausted. We have to focus on the road so hard in a situation like that. Inside the car was so much peace. Outside the car was a raging 90-minute storm. Inside the car was so much peace. And I thought about what we have been talking about all summer long. Inner peace doesn't mean you're not in a storm. Inner peace means you're in someone who can shoulder that storm and keep you in a haven while you're going through it. That moment where the rain is just blasting the window and it feels like you're driving through a strobe light because there's so much lightning, but in the car you're having a healthy conversation with another pastor who pastors other people. And it's this wonderful, that kind of inner stillness is what Christ wants for us in all of the storms we go through in life. But we have to practice it. We have to be quiet. We have to learn to listen. We have to learn to not respond. Count one, two, three before you say something back to somebody else. Those things will cultivate inner stillness. The times that we're in right now are apocalypsing or revealing that we have a lack of compassion for others and for ourselves. In the brief amount of time I have left in this sermon, not my life, that sounded morbid all of a sudden. I almost didn't know where I was going with that for a second. I wish everybody could hear what's going on up here. It's like, it's like legion. It's like... In this brief amount of time that I have here, I want, us, I want you to think about, first of all, are you compassionate with your own self? And are you compassionate with other people? What does compassion mean? A lot of reading to whittle it down to this. Compassion is when you're moved into offering your life as opposed to being obligated to offer your life. Many of us offer our lives because it's the right thing to do. But God wants more for us than that. He wants us to be moved into offering our life, moved into being there for other people, moved into being like Jesus when he went to the other side of the river after his cousin was beheaded and he just wanted to get time to himself and 5,000 people plus men and women followed him to where he was going and instead of being aggravated and saying, I can't get a minute to myself, it said he had compassion on them for they were like sheep without a shepherd and he fed them and he taught them and he he greeted each one of them as they left. And it wasn't out of obligation because when you do something well out of obligation, it can have a good impact on somebody's life. But when you do something out of compassion, it has a transformative impact on somebody's life. Doing the right thing for the right reason has a good impact on somebody else's life. But doing the right thing because you're, you're joining the passion of Christ has a transformative impact. And so many of us are so secure in the fact that we do the right thing even if we don't want to, but we still do it, that we're missing the beauty of what it means to walk around with passion, calm passion. 
being motivated by love, being motivated by the desire to serve, being motivated to be wronged and surprise the person wronging us with service, with a gift, with a kind word, with prayer. Every one of us has had a moment in the presence of God where for a brief moment, for a few days, for a month, we were that kind of person that was like, I don't care what anybody does to me, I'm just going to love the heck out of them. And it can quickly dwindle. (laughs) It can quickly dwindle. Especially when it's not reciprocated. But that's an apocalypse. Because when I love and serve Corey, because I'm just in love with Jesus, and Corey doesn't love and serve me back, and I get mad, that was an apocalypse showing me I really wasn't serving Corey because I love Jesus. I was either serving him because it was the right thing to do, or I was investing in him, hoping to get a return. Compassion doesn't care about dividends. Compassion is just this way. It's just out. It's just serving. And so many of us, so many of us can look at a time in our life where we just served, where we poured ourselves over other people, where we prayed, where we gave, where we volunteered, where we were there for our neighbors, where people who weren't even in the church knew who we were, and we can all say we've kind of gotten away from it a little bit. We've gotten older, we've gotten tired, we're more busy, so we think, than we were before COVID and all this other stuff. We'll talk about that one another time. There's a pandemic out there. It's a virus of feeling like we're more busy than we really are, and we need to talk about that. But there was a time where serving was easy because we were motivated by the passion of Jesus, compassion. And so... This encounter that Jesus has with the lawyer reveals that the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Pillars that hold up everything Jesus came for. Jesus didn't come to get rid of the law. Look at the person next to you and say, the law is good. David says, Daily, the, the, the law of the Lord is my delight. How can a young man keep his way pure? By honoring the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord is good. And Jesus came to fulfill it, to put flesh and bones and blood and resurrection and forgiveness onto the law. He came to embody it, to live it out, to show us that it's not just obligation, but it could be a joyful life lived. And this encounter shows that the Ten Commandments by themselves without compassion Don't help anybody. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, the law, how do you read it? And he lists the Ten Commandments. And Jesus says, you've done these? Go. Knowing full well that that's not going to satisfy the person because performing the Bible doesn't satisfy our soul. Being right doesn't satisfy your soul. Maybe massages your ego, but doesn't satisfy your soul. Getting, having the right verse for the right time and nailing somebody with it does not satisfy our soul. Becoming the Ten Commandments satisfies our soul. Becoming the embodiment of Christ satisfies our soul. Doing the things that Jesus did does not satisfy. Getting the things that Jesus did right does not satisfy. Becoming like him does. And if you're rolling your eyes out, Pastor, what's the difference? Everything is the difference between performing and executing versus becoming. When you become, when you are melted 
and moved by the love of God and you become, guess what happens? You actually have to deny yourself less because you're changing and the things you're doing are good and it's no longer a fight to do good things. When you're becoming, when you start to become, you have to deny yourself for everything. But as you are sanctified through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, becoming like Jesus, you actually deny yourself less because the things you're doing are the things that Jesus would do. Who would like to naturally flow in the direction of Jesus and not have to always battle yourself to do it? If you want to be like Jesus, walk out of the room right now. <laughs> John always leaves. He's done. First thing Jesus does, and we need to take a play out of this playbook. The man shows up and says to test him, uh, good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus doesn't Jesus knows that this man needs compassion. That's why he's about to tell the story. He knows he needs compassion, but Jesus doesn't tell him he needs compassion right away. That's where we go wrong. We get the prophetic, we get the same prophetic word that Jesus had. You know, Steve Relier comes up to me, he's like, Pastor Bill, what do I have to do? And right away I discern Steve is lacking some compassion in his life. What we are inclined to do is just immediately tell them that. We're inclined to immediately tell our kids what they just did wrong. Tell our spouse what they just did wrong. Tell our friends and coworkers and extended family, I know how your life could get better. Boom, and tell them. But Jesus says, the law, how do you read it? And he gives the person the chance to express the wrong way of reading it. And Jesus never says, you're wrong. He says, go and do it. Let's put it this way. Can you imagine Nancy Pelosi called up Mitch McConnell and was like, hey, Mitch, I hope you're having a good day today. The situation in the world, how do you read it? Well, thanks for asking, Nancy. I hope you're having a wonderful day, too. Here's how I read it. How do you read it? Thanks, Mitch. This is a wonderful conversation. Let's get together later and try to fix this. They're not having that conversation. Monkeypox just showed up. Everyone excited about that? President Biden's not calling Donald Trump saying, hey, uh, Donald, hey, Joe, hope you're having a good day today. Hope you're having one too. How did you feel when Corona first broke on the scene? What are some things you did right? What are some things you did wrong? And Donald Trump's like, I would love to tell you the things that we did wrong, and I would love to share with you the things that we did right so that you could have a wholesome time as president. This is not happening because no one has compassion. It's silly, it's a joke, it's an anecdote, but we're not doing it in our own lives either. We're not giving people a chance to speak to how they're misreading something. We just immediately sense they're misreading it or doing it wrong or not saying it right or not agreeing with us, and bam, we just shell them with our answers. There's no compassion in that. None. How do you read it? It's a brilliant question to ask somebody. Mom and dad, what do you think about the relationship I'm in? What do you think about the relationship that you're in? Give me a chance to get my bearings before I accidentally curse you out about the relationship that you're in. What if we gave people the chance? We, we, know, we know that the, what's going to come out of their mouth is messed up, but what if we gave them the chance to speak? Because what if discourse is more important than correctness? 
what if relationship, and I know this is a stretch, what if relationship is more important than getting it right? Can you imagine getting it right was the most important thing to Jesus? Who would we be talking about right now? He would have been long gone and his spirit would not be with us. He'd go be with the only person to get it right. It would just be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit would be the only people on the earth. Relationship is obviously more important to him than getting it right. That's why he's in my life. <laughs> so he lets him speak. And then he tells him a story. And I want, literally want to close by saying this. The Levite and the priest walk by the man. They see him beat up on the side of the road. They go to the other side of the street, and they walk by him. Why? The Bible doesn't tell us why. Because we're supposed to sit down with each other and talk about all the reasons why we would go to the other side of the road and not help the guy. There, Jesus doesn't give a reason why the Levite and the priest, whose job it is to be there for those who have been beat up. Why they don't stop. Because we have to put ourselves in the story. Why do I walk to the other side of the street when I see somebody hurting? Why do I move away from trial when it comes into my life? Well, for me, sometimes I'm so much trying to get through my own stuff that I buy into the lie that if I get other people's stuff on me while I'm trying to get through my stuff, then I'm going to mess up both people's stuff. When sometimes, if I can give my stuff over to God and help you with your stuff, maybe God will start taking care of mine or give me some strength that I don't normally have to take care of my own stuff because I'm honoring him by helping you with yours, counting other people as more significant than myself. We say amen here, but don't. Because we need to say amen to that on Tuesday afternoon. You need to still be saying amen to that. Why'd they, why'd they walk to their side? Did the Levite and the priest maybe say, you know what, I know the kind of life this guy was living. If he was making better decisions, he wouldn't have been on this road at night. He wouldn't have gotten beat up by robbers. If he would have followed the rules, it serves him right. This is going to teach him a lesson. Maybe they were so busy doing good things that they were too busy to do a Jesus thing. Maybe they were too busy getting it right themselves that they were too busy to get it right for him. We have to ask ourselves, does the way we spend our time show that we have compassion on other people? Not just compassion, joyful compassion. Not obligatory compassion, joyful compassion. Because when the Samaritan saw the man, he had compassion and does four things. The Samaritan, full of compassion, does four things. Very simple. First, it says that he went to him. It says that he went to him. He gave of his time. When compassion fills you, you stop seeing time as your own. And you stop seeing it as limited. And you're excited to offer it. Because maybe God's not going to give me 27 hours in a day. He's not going to make the sun stand still like he did for Joshua. But maybe when I give of my time to Bill... Maybe God will give me more time in my life, not by giving me more hours, but by making me handle the hours I have better. Do you know we could be as unfortunately mishandling of our time as we can our money? And the two are deeply related anyway. Another thing we can talk about in September when we talk about finances. Everyone's like, I'm not coming to church in September. It's fine. He went to him. He gave of his time. He bound up his wounds. He gave of his goods. He had stuff on him 
It was for him. It was for wherever he was going, and he gave of his goods. Compassion, not obligatory compassion. The, the Levite and the Pharisee could have said, we can't stop for him because we're going to this conference. We're going to this sermon. We're going to this synagogue. That's where we have to go. And because they're doing the obligatory thing, they miss the relational thing. But when you have real compassion brought into your life, nothing is yours anymore. And I've said this before. When you're full of compassion, people can't steal from you because it was already there to be given. People can't steal your time when your time was there for them in the first place. People can't steal your money when your money was going to be offered anyhow. People can't steal your goods when your goods were going to be given anyway. And a person who's filled with compassion understands that. Can't rob me. It's like Jesus, Jesus never felt like he was betrayed by Judas because he was offering himself anyhow. That's why he told him, once Jesus told Judas to go betray him, Judas was no longer betraying him. He was obeying him. Think about it. Let it sit there for a second. Let it sit. Hover over the room like the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1. He offered his vehicle. I put vehicle instead of horse so that we can make this. He offered him his vehicle. Why is this significant? Because dude walked the rest of the way. He gave of his physical strength. He didn't just give of his money. He didn't just give of his goods. He didn't just give of his time. He gave of his physical strength. Whatever strength he had left, he gave because he was doing the walking while the injured man was doing the riding. He gave of his physical strength. And we say, I don't have enough physical strength to give. There's no such thing as not having enough. There's only giving what you have. Stop with the is it enough part. Just give what you have. Maybe he'll make us better with our strength. Maybe a dose, and I can't believe I'm about to say this, but it's true, maybe a dose of happiness will help us feel like we have more strength than we thought we had. And maybe happiness comes when we offer somebody else our ease and we take the hard road so they could take the easier road. Maybe that gives me some happiness and all of a sudden the adrenaline gives me more energy than I thought I had. Rob, maybe not. I don't know. Me and you are on the same page with that one, though. Good. I don't mind the hats, but the particular one you're wearing, the Yankee hat, it's a problem in the kingdom. It's science. Yeah. Pride and pinstripes. Ask Adam and Eve about pride. Anyway. Final thing, he booked a room. He gave money. He gave time. He gave goods. He gave strength. He gave money. Why? Out of compassion. You might be sitting here saying, good, makes sense on paper, but I, I just can't get myself to have that passion that I used to have. I can't get myself to feel that excitement for serving that I used to have. I can't bring myself to more than I'm feeling now. Here's the thing. We have to be honest with that. We have to be honest with that. If you can't feel the ability to bring compassion into your life like that, say it. Because it's only in the light of honesty 
that God comes and heals the things we're honest about because he's not intrusive. How do we get the compassion? Where does it come from? I will tell you this, and hopefully this gets your attention. You can't choose to have it. You can't make a decision to have it. It's not within your willpower to have it. You can't decide right now to choose joy. Because if you could, you would have. So how does it come? Jesus weaves a secret. Hey, John. Come on in. I have compassion on you right now. Worship team. Just so everybody knows, I'm the one trying to get us out on time. So don't look at me like pastors after 1130. I'm not the one strolling on in like a Saturday afternoon in the park. That's not me. I got here 45 minutes late today, but that's an entirely different story. How do we get the compassion? Let's stand to our feet this morning. Where does it come from? We don't want to be people who merely do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. That is actually not, that is a tourniquet. It can save you in a moment of indulgence, but it will not bear fruit in your life. Doing the right thing out of obligation or even discipline is a tourniquet. It can stop the bleeding, but it's not the main health that God has. The main health that God has for us is a life where his life is flowing through ours freely and joyfully in all circumstances. How do we get there? Jesus weaves a clue into the very end of the Good Samaritan story. And he says, the Samaritan dropped the man off at the inn and gave two denarii and said, when this is gone, I'll come back and give you the rest. Well, what is a denarii? It's one day's wage. So Jesus weaves into the story, I will give you the wages for two days. And on the third day, I'll come back and pay the rest. I'll give you enough for two days, and it's going to run out because your virtue isn't enough, because your willpower isn't enough, because your choices are not enough. When it runs out, I will come back on the third day and close the gap. That means that we can only have compassion if we know that Jesus had to rise from the dead because we were the person beaten on the side of the road ourselves. Let me say this. We can only have compassion when we realize that we were the robbers who beat the man up and Jesus rose to save us from that sin and to change our hearts. We can only have compassion when we realize that only Jesus is the good Samaritan in the story. We're the Levite and the priest walking by. We're the man beaten within a half an inch of our life on the road. We are the people who did it to him. When we're those people and we realize that the resurrection saves us from that, then compassion grows. I told Ian to throw these verses in last minute. Ian, go to, go to Acts 13, verse 8. 
The Apostle Paul is performing miracles and teaching Acts 13, verse 8. And it says, but Elamis, well, they, they got to have Don, we can call him, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, this is, this is key, but Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Read by itself, that seems so judgmental. But what did Paul just ask the Holy Spirit to do for that man? The very same thing the Holy Spirit did for him. I was the one filled with Villainy. I was the one who was the son of the devil. I was the one persecuting the church. I was the one bringing darkness where there's light. And he shut my eyes for three days. And scales finally fell off of him. And I finally opened my eyes. He's not asking God to judge this man. He's asking God to convert him with the same conversion that he had. Because when you can realize you were the one doing the beating, then, when you realize Jesus saved you from being aggressive and violent and self-centered, then compassion can finally fill your heart. But if we are like the lawyer and say, what must I do to have eternal life? We'll never have compassion. But when we say, Lord, what did you do so that I could have eternal life? Not what must I do, but what did you do so that I could have eternal life? Salem, a compassion will come over you that will change the way you wake up on Monday morning. You don't have to dread work. You don't have to dread the situation you're in financially. You don't have to dread the sickness that may be in your body. You don't have to dread the broken relationships. You also don't have to ignore them. Hope can fill them, but also so can mission and mission driven by compassion and compassion driven by the fact that when we couldn't get up, Jesus continually picks us up off the side of the road, puts us on his vehicle, binds up our wounds, brings us to the inn, and three days later comes back for us. This is what he always does. And when we focus on what he's doing in our life and not what everybody else is doing wrong or what we think we're doing wrong, when we focus on what he's doing right, a compassion can fill our heart that makes serving and offering exciting and not obligatory. We don't maybe even have to discipline ourselves because something greater than discipline is animating us. We might not even have to deny ourselves because the Spirit of God is just coursing through our veins. And we're doing the things of God because we want to. I believe God has freedom for you this morning. If that's you, if you're here and you're saying, I, I, need, I don't want to just do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. I want to be, have joy in mission. If you're saying, I want to be the kind of person who before anything else changes in my life for the better, I want to be content with what it is now, if it never changed, if it stayed exactly where it is. 
I want to wake up tomorrow and know that my God is greater. I want to wake up tomorrow and be able to enjoy a sunrise and not have all of my anxieties cloud it the minute I start to enjoy something. Have you ever been there where the minute you start to enjoy something honestly and organically, all of a sudden all these thoughts of what's messed up in your life come flying in. It's almost like they waited until the moment when you were finally free to enjoy a moment and they come and wreak havoc on you. You can wake up tomorrow and not have that happen. One touch of the Holy Spirit on your life. A couple friends in the room right now who will remind you of this sermon. Saying to Jesus, I'm the one who beat you up. I beat you up when I don't appreciate my life. I beat you up every time I want more than what I have. I beat you up every time I go to somebody else's house for a cookout and think, I want a yard like they have. Forgive me. Heal me. What can you do to give me eternal life? Salem, we, can be, we don't have to live under this cloud of just getting by. We don't. You've all been through tough things. I can look at, today is the, my five-year anniversary of getting ordained as pastor in this church. Five years ago today, we got ordained. Five years ago yesterday, and I never even brought it up to Pastor Mark the whole time we hung out. Not once. I know, or not, and it doesn't matter. Frank said pretty good. I can look around the room now after five years and I see the stories. I know what many of you are actually going through. And you can enter what you're going through tomorrow without it having to go away with a new heart and a new spirit and a new enthusiasm, not vain optimism, but hope rooted in the empty tomb of Jesus. Hope that says, even if I get walked on at work tomorrow, I lay down my life for my enemies because maybe it'll make them friends. That doesn't, if that grinds against you, it's because the compassion's not there. I just thought of somebody and it grinded against me. I'm coming to the altar call I'm about to have. When we come to the table, I'm going to ask Elder George if he would stand over here. And I'm going to ask Elder Bill if he would stand over here so that you can come and receive from the Lord's table and then spend a little while at the altar and ask the Holy Spirit to touch your life. I'm telling you right now, I can sense in my spirit by looking around the room that some of you are itching to get out of here. Jesus wants to do something about that spirit this morning because you don't realize that you don't just have it here, you have it at work, you have it with your family, you have it. if you have it here, you have it everywhere. If you're annoyed here, you're annoyed everywhere. If you're looking at the clock here, you're looking at the clock when you're on date night with your wife. You say you're not, but you are. There's healing that needs to happen so that we can leave and heal the world. It has to happen in here. Where does judgment have to begin? In the house of God. We need healing because the world is making it harder and harder to have compassion and it's making it easier to do the right thing for only the right reasons. But that's robbing you of a fruitful, joyful existence. You can wake up and want to do Jesus things 
because Jesus is doing them next to you. Holy Spirit, we know we see this lived on the night that your son was betrayed. When night had shown up, when betrayal was imminent, when denial was imminent, Lord Jesus, you had a burst of thanksgiving. Fill your body in the middle of horrible circumstances. Eucharist, the great thanksgiving, filled your body. And you held up bread that represented your brokenness and you gave thanks. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would break over this church a spirit of thanksgiving, of gratitude, of thoughtfulness, that at the very least we would be people who will wake up tomorrow and even if we don't like the rest of the day, we'll thank you for it and mean it. And mean it. You took the bread and you said, this is my body. Joyfully, as it says in Hebrews, joyfully broken for you. Jesus, how could you have joyfully went through that? Because you knew what it would do for us. Give us the grace through this meal, through your Holy Spirit, through your word, through the church, through our friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, to see more the joy of what our compassion can do for somebody else than what it costs us. Help us to not be accountants with our time, talent, and treasure, but offer it knowing that we have a greater inheritance waiting for us. And after supper, you took the cup of wine. And after you had given thanks, you said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that you descend on this bread. And I pray that you would make it the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him. And sanctify us also. Anyone, Father God, who bends the knee at the altar, who stands at the altar and says, open up my life to compassion, I pray that you would bestow it upon them today in a way that is exactly right for what they are going to face next. I pray that Salem would wake up tomorrow and receive the new mercies by our bedside and face the light and the darkness that we're going into, knowing that the life of Christ can redeem the world through our bodies. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Everybody on the left side of the room, you can come to George. Everybody on my right side of the room, you can come to Elder Bill. And if you feel led, stop at the altar and ask the Holy Spirit to fill you with compassion this morning. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.